invite you now to turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. Our text this morning is verses 6 through 9. If you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is the very Word of God. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative over our lives. 1 Peter, chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given us this Your Word by Your servant Peter. And we pray that You would use it in our lives here, now, today, and this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Suffering is a theme found in the Bible. I would dare say that most, if not all of you, have heard probably not one, but several sermons on the topic of suffering. There are many, many texts that speak of it. The problem is, though, is that oftentimes we either teach or hear or live out, in spite of teaching, unbiblical views of suffering. They can look something like this. Perhaps you've had the experience of your child being outside playing and falling down and scraping a knee or hurting an elbow. And the pain seems to be so unbelievable that the screaming and crying will never stop until that thing with magical properties comes out the band-aid. And you say, that's not so bad. And you kiss it and put the band-aid on. And guess what? Everything's all better. Sometimes we view suffering like that. It's something that as we speak to ourselves and others, we want to say biblically, oh, that's not so bad. Don't worry about it. There's another way that we often look at suffering. I have to remind you often that they didn't invent football in Texas. Up in the north, dwelt and played the greatest running back to ever play the game, a man by the name of Jim Brown. And Jim Brown had a habit. No matter how hard he was hit, how light he was hit, he always got up at exactly the same 
speed. Slowly. Because he never wanted anyone around him to know if they heard him or not. He didn't want to pop up quickly if he was okay, and then get up slowly if he was hurt. He always got up slowly. Sometimes we think that's what the Christian life is like with respect to suffering. We're to grit it, bear it, and act so that no one knows if we're suffering. But you see, neither one of these examples is what the Apostle Peter tells to us in his wise, pastoral, inspired by the Holy Spirit counsel. No. What Peter has for us today is a description of the reality of suffering in our life. What suffering really means. But you can't speak of that without then speaking of the second thing that Peter tells us, and that is the reality of Jesus Christ in our life the reality of our suffering, the reality of Jesus Christ, and that leads inevitably to something we don't expect when we speak of suffering, but that is the reality of joy in our lives. Suffering, Jesus Christ, and joy. Let's see how all of these things are tied together by Peter this morning. Our text begins with a context, the timing of the reality of suffering. Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The context that Peter sets up is in this. And immediately we begin to think, what's the this? And if this were a a nice academic lecture and I wanted perhaps to cure you of insomnia, I would go on and on and on at length about how some commentators say that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some people say it's the last times. Some people say it's the time of faith. Some people say it's this, that, and the other. But I think the answer is more simple and pastoral. After all, we have to remind ourselves that our author here is a fisher pastorman. Fisherman pastor, excuse me. And in this is all of what he's been talking about. It's part of the reason I read verses 3, 4, and 5. It's this entire description of this wonder of salvation. You recall we looked at that a few weeks ago. We said, what a salvation. Predestination election. The work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter has been lifting up before our eyes how great a salvation we have. And it's in that context that he begins to speak of suffering. Isn't that interesting? You see, it's a context for suffering. Don't think about suffering in a vacuum. But the second thing that we see is something, again, that's sort of obvious and practical, but we don't dare pass by. And that is that the timing of this suffering that they are experiencing is now. Though now, for a little while, you experience these trials. You see, Peter is speaking to them exactly where they are right now. He's not saying, look out, something's going to come down the pike. He's not saying... Glad you got through that. Clear sailing ahead. He's saying, I know right now that you're experiencing trials and difficulties. You see, this is the need of the hour for for these believers, this flock of Peter's. And so Peter, with his typical characteristic action, goes straight to the point. He doesn't mix words. He doesn't beat around the bush. He goes straight to the point. And there's an application for us from this. 
perhaps today you are waiting to get through something to come to the Lord. Perhaps you're thinking, as soon as the difficulties that I'm experiencing in my marriage get better, then I'll believe on Jesus. And that's applicable to both those of us that are here that have never known the Lord Jesus Christ and need to come to a saving knowledge. You don't dare put that off, but that's also true of those of us that have known the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't put Jesus off until you've fixed up your life. Right now, in the midst of the mess at work, with the kids, trying to pay bills, that's when you come to the Lord. This is the timing of the suffering that's real for Peter's people. But we don't just see the timing, we see that the effects are there. Peter is not going to let us be pie-in-the-sky philosophers or theologians. Because he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You see, Peter says, I know you are experiencing real pain and suffering. Older translations translate this word grieving with the word suffer. But it is actually closer to a grieving. It's not that a translation is bad or good. It's that the word suffer has changed a bit. We think of suffering only as as sort of something that happens to us. But we suffer in our souls and in our minds, don't we? It's the sleepless nights, Mom, when you're thinking about the future of your children. It's the time that you pace in the house, Dad, when things at work are a little bit shaky and you don't really want to share it with the kids or with others. You see, that causes an anguish of soul. There's some fear. There is pain. It is a grief. The irony here is is that that's actually, if we were to give a good biblical definition of grieving, we might say its opposite is rejoicing. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, lays that out for us very clearly. He says, I see you and you are causing me grief, word here, when I should be getting joy from you. You're giving me this when I should get that. It's opposite. Peter is using them here interchangeably because he's saying, I understand the reality of your grief. And Peter is a good man to tell us this. He is not like modern politicians that stand up in a podium with a $600 haircut and a private Learjet and say to the man who's just lost his job, I feel your pain. Peter's been there. Suffering? Christian, are you in prison? Peter's been there. Not once, twice. Have you felt anguish because you feel that you've denied the Lord Jesus Christ and haven't put him first in your life at all times? Peter's been there. Have you felt that you don't have the right words to say and you stumble? We know Peter's been there. Peter knows what they're going through. Because it's common to Christian experience. It's just as common to you and to me as it was to these first century pilgrims and to Peter. And this is a very real suffering because 
What Peter doesn't say is, I know you're suffering, those of you that have illness. And immediately mentally in our mind we go, you, 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 not you, 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 not you, not you. No. He says it's coming from various trials. From all over the place. And we might, in our sanctified imagination, imagine what they're experiencing. Perhaps they're having difficulties in their families. Perhaps there are marriages that are hurting in Bithynia and Pontus. Just like in Katie. Perhaps there are children who are disobedient in Cappadocia. Just like in Katie. Perhaps there are dreams that are unfulfilled. And the pain from that is unbelievable in Galatia. Just like it is here in Katie. You see, Peter is speaking to us. He says he knows it comes from all different directions. There's probably persecution coming from the Roman government. They're having difficulties at work. Perhaps the Jews are there mixing up trouble from the synagogues. It's coming at them from every direction. Do you feel like that sometimes? You know this saying? It doesn't rain, but it pours. Work, spouse, kids, money, government, news. And you want to go sit in your room somewhere and shut the door, turn off the light. That's real. That's real. And it was for them. But the reality of this suffering also provides opportunity. You see, Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are being grieved. You have been grieved. You see, Peter implies that suffering has its opportunities. It is okay to be grieved. I'm going to say that again. It is okay to be a Christian and experience grief. Sometimes we don't think so. Calvin said it this way in his characteristic fashion. He said, Christians, the faithful are not logs of wood. It's a picturesque way of saying that we are not meant to put up a mask, to be Stoics. There were Stoics in Peter's time. These were people in Rome, philosophers. Paul dealt with them. And their way of dealing with life was to ignore all the pain around them. To just pretend it didn't exist. Put their fingers in their ears and move forward. Always move forward. Don't look around. Don't think. Don't talk. Move forward. They were kind of first century energizer bunnies. They keep going and going and going. And they don't ever stop. One of their philosophers was a man named Epictetus. He was a slave and a servant to the Roman emperor. And this is typical of the way he thought life should be lived. He was sitting at the feet of the emperor, who was amusing himself by twisting and contorting his arm. And the emperor said to him, what do you think, uh, what do you think about this? And Epictetus said, well, I think if you keep twisting my arm, it's going to break. And he kept twisting, and it broke. And Epictetus' reaction was, see, I told you it would break. That's not how we're called to live as Christians. Ignoring what's going on around us. You see, we are called to understand the reality of suffering. Peter says you are going to go through various trials. The very word evokes something in us. You know, there's often a theological debate about this word. Sometimes it means trials, sometimes it means temptations. 
And in translations, we wonder, should it be a trial or should it be a temptation? Why? Trials come from God. Temptations do not. Right? And we may wonder, why are these two words so alike? And I think it's because of the opportunity that's provided us in thinking about the reality of suffering. Let me ask you a question. When are you most vulnerable to sin? Is it when life is good and you're well-rested and have just eaten a good meal and relaxing? Or is it when you only got four hours sleep the night before and you've skipped a meal and one of your children comes up to ask, may I? Which time do you bark at them with anger that is unnecessary and sinful? How many of you have said this to a spouse? Well, I'm sorry that I said that, but you know, I was just so tired from today. Work was so hard. The kids were so difficult, right? It's natural. We are vulnerable to temptation when we are going through difficulties. It's one of the reasons why these things go together. But an opportunity comes to us at the same time in suffering because it is an opportunity, Peter says, It's an arena, we might think, to show our faith. Think of the biggest stadium that you could think of, arena. The suffering that we experience is an opportunity to exercise faith. Because God delights in being trusted. He delights in that. And so, what Peter would say to us is, if you're experiencing suffering, that's real. Acknowledge it. Don't ignore it. But look to the Lord. That is the reality of suffering. But Peter doesn't just describe the difficulties that are going on here. He then moves on to the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. For in verse 7, he describes, after he's described this suffering, he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't miss the words, so that. Peter's giving pastoral counsel here. He's saying, I know you have difficulties and griefs and suffering, but let me tell you something. They're not random. They're not without a purpose. They're real and they're painful, and please acknowledge that. But they are not purposeless. There is a reason (coughs) that suffering comes our way. And one of those reasons is that we might have greater faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is a greater part of our life. They show the genuineness of our faith in Christ. Our faith is seen to be like gold. As a matter of fact... It seemed to be more precious than gold. You see, (coughs) the faith that you have in Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ is more valuable to the Christian than anything the world could offer. It's not just, don't just think about a gold ring or a little gold bar. That way of speaking, more valuable than gold, would be to say, your faith... Jesus Christ and his reality is more to you than a $5 million 401k account. And two homes in the Bahamas. And a private jet to get there. 
and a lifetime supply of filet mignon. We can keep piling things on. But you see, Jesus is more valuable than anything that the world has to offer. That is real. That's not just something that we hope or put out as a maybe. No, that's real. Jesus is real. You see, one of the things that we think about here is that when you think about this testing of gold, we think what happens is, well, there's some thing, and we stick it in the fire, and gold comes out. The rest of it burns away, and gold comes out. And so the fire is there to give us real gold. And so we analogize and say, sufferings are there to give us real faith. As if when we're suffering, we don't have real faith. But that's not what Peter says here. You see, there's another thing that you could do with gold. Gold, I had to actually look this up, comes in carrots. I don't know who decided that, but they decided that a good way to test the purity of gold would be to divide it up into 24ths. Why a good number like 10 wouldn't work? I don't know. But it's 24ths, and that's where we get carrots from. So 24 carat gold is pure gold. One carat gold is pretty much a hunk of lead or steel or some such junk. But you see, what you can do is, if someone says to you, I don't think that that ring on your finger is pure gold. You can say, you don't think so? Let's put it in the fire. And pull it out. See? Didn't burn away. It's real. That's what Peter's talking about here. You see, one of the things that's involved here with suffering is to see the genuineness of our faith. To show us that we know it to be true, to prove it not only to others, but now catch this, to ourselves. That's a benefit of the difficulties that we go through. It encourages us when we get on the other side to say, yes, I've had pain, yes, I've had difficulties, but by God's grace, I've gotten through it. I could have only gotten through that with the Lord. And it encourages us in our own faith. Think about kids. Think about when you take a test or an exam. Do you take a test or an examination in order to learn the material? Do you sit down and say, I think I'll learn geometry. I'll take a test. Who does that? You know who does that? People who fail. You take a test to show what you already know. Right? Same principle here. God sends us trials to encourage us. How many of you have had this experience? There was an email that, that went around, that John sent around, encouraging some of us homeschoolers. Mother had not sure that her kids had understood the English she had been teaching. They were going into school. She wasn't sure how they do. They took exams. They all got high 90s. And she said to herself, what? Wow, they really do know it. You see? Sometimes we need those kind of aha moments in our faith. And trials and testing provide that. Peter says that Jesus Christ is real also to show that we have a relationship with him. Because look here, all of these trials, the end of these trials is to focus us upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this testing of faith, it results in praise and glory and honor when? at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, a philosopher could say, 
you go through trials, that testing your character might be seen to be upright and honorable. But a philosopher would never say, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He would not point you to the Lord Jesus. You see, that's Peter's emphasis here. In the midst of your trials, look to the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is with us, even if he's invisible. It doesn't say when you get to know Jesus. When you first meet Jesus, it says when Jesus is revealed to you. Right? Isn't this what we say? And this suffering, this relationship that we have with Jesus teaches us that this suffering is just but for a little while, Peter says. Now, somehow that's difficult to take at times, right? Especially when it goes week after month after year after year, right? But when we compare now, verse 6, with the revelation of Jesus Christ and eternity, then it becomes what? But a little while. You see, it's only in the context of all of our relationship with Jesus that our suffering takes its proper place. Because we get the big picture. We get the big timeline. That's the only time that we get that. This is part of what testing is about, is to, is to grow in our relationship with the Lord. A good example of this is the Old Testament story of Abraham. Right? The Lord really tested Abraham. He gives Abraham a promise and he says, I want you to go to this land, and I am going to bless the entire world through your son. Sounds like a good promise. Go up and down, a couple of bumps here and there, and Isaac is born. Wow. The Lord is fulfilling his promise. Oh, wait a minute. The Lord says, I want you to put your son to death as a sacrifice. Lord, you just said you were going to bless the whole world through my son. Now, Abraham has a test here. Who is he closest to in his relationship? Is it his son? Is it his wife? What do you think Sarah would have thought about this plan? Is it everyone who's around him? You know, all of those pagans who were doing human sacrifice? Who might say, your God's no different than our God. Abraham was closest to the Lord. As a matter of fact... This trial put him so close to God that he said, I will believe God's promise. <clears throat> and if God has to break the laws of nature and suspend death, he will to keep his promise. Hebrews 11 tells us that, doesn't it? That's a test that shows the relationship that a believer has with his Lord. Jesus is also real to us in seeing our love to him. Not just our faith in him, not just our relationship with him, but also our love to him. Because look at what Peter says. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He says, you don't even see him and you love him. That's how real Jesus is to you. Now, Peter's talking as someone who has seen not only Jesus, but the risen Jesus. And he says, you've never even seen him. 
and you love him. That's how real Jesus is to you. We might think that maybe in the back of Peter's mind as he's writing it, he's, he's hearing the words that our Lord said and John recorded, where he said, Blessed are those who have not seen. You remember when he said that to Thomas? He said, you see and believe, blessed are those who don't even see and believe. This is what Peter is saying to them. What he's saying is don't look to circumstances. Just because it's not visible or tangible does not mean it is not real. That's true of your love to Jesus. It's true of life. This is evidence of the genuineness of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is love. What do I mean by that? Let's think about Peter for a moment. How do we know that Peter had genuine faith in Jesus? Was it because Peter stood by Jesus in his darkest hour? No. Was it because Peter was standing at the cross encouraging our Lord? No. Was it because Peter took care of Jesus' mother, Mary? No. If Peter's genuineness of faith would have been tested by his actions, he's in a lot of trouble. Right? We know that Peter's faith was genuine because at the end of John, our Lord pulls him aside and he doesn't say, what will you do for me, Peter? Will you preach me, Peter? Will you build my church, Peter? No. He says, do you love me? Not once. Do you love me? Not twice. Do you love me? Three times. And that is the answer and the reality that our Lord gives to Peter to stabilize him through great difficulties. It's the same for you. The reality of Jesus Christ in your life. Love for him. Peter doesn't just tell us that suffering is real. He doesn't just tell us that Jesus is real. He tells us that those two truths mean that joy that we have is real. He says, this is where real joy comes from. You rejoice even in the midst of your suffering. You have real patience In the midst of real sorrow, it is tempered by the joy of knowing Christ. You see, it's because you know Jesus Christ, it's because you, he says, believe in him that you rejoice with joy. That's where real joy comes from. Now notice what he doesn't say. Real joy does not replace grieving. He doesn't say, once you stop grieving, you'll have joy. He says, in your grief, you rejoice. You rejoice though you grieve. (coughs) Knowing the Lord Jesus Christ in all circumstances is where we get real joy. You may have heard an analogy to this effect. Oftentimes a preacher will say, the difference between joy and happiness is this. Happiness is being happy in good circumstances. Joy is being happy in bad circumstances. I've even heard someone use an analogy that happiness is like the radio playing. And when you go into a tunnel, the radio cuts out. 
But joy is like a tape deck or a CD player, for those of us that are older and 8-track. And that keeps going through the darkness of the tunnel. Well, I'm here to say to you that that's not what biblical joy is. Biblical joy is not being happy, happy, happy all the time, 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 no matter what is going on. If you believe that, you've been sold a bill of goods. Because what that means then is you are restricted from ever feeling grief. And as a Christian, you feel guilty that you have to be sunshine on a stick all the time. And that's not real. That's not real joy. Because Peter says you're grieving, but you experience real joy. What real joy is, is it is glorious. You see that what he says? Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Rejoicing in the Bible has a connotation of yelling out. Of rejoicing in God's salvation, even in the midst of difficulties. This word for rejoice, it's very interesting. It's used 80 times in the Bible. 50 times it's used in the Psalms. 10 times in Isaiah, in very similar kinds of passages. Very, very, very often it revolves around rejoicing in God and specifically salvation. It is something that keeps us going. It is a constant source of support and joy. Our position in the Lord. Peter uses this word more than anyone else in the New Testament because he He's speaking to those who are suffering, who are in difficulty. It it is inexpressible. That's what joy is. It's beyond the power of words to convey. What does that mean? Have you ever had the experience of either yourself or watching someone hold a newborn? When they do it and they don't even talk, You ever see a new dad? You just look at him. Right? Joy that is inexpressible. Let me give you another analogy. You are, we talked before a few weeks ago about teaching a child how to ride a bike. When you let go of the bike and they're doing it on their own. Right? The look that comes on their face when they realize they're doing it on their own and they're not going to fall. Joy beyond words. Inexpressible. But this inexpressible joy also means that you don't have to talk about it all the time. And people still know it. You see, another thing that we think as Christians is that what we need to do is every time we walk into a room, we need to tell everyone within earshot how happy we are, how good Jesus is, and our life story. There's nothing wrong with that. Witnessing by use of words is highly effective. But the Christian should be witnessing, should be showing his joy in Christ, even when he's not talking. Now, again, that doesn't mean a smile on the face. (laughs) Because if someone sees that, others will see through the facade. If you say, just lost my job can't pay my mortgage. Wife's got cancer. I'm so happy. They're going to look at you and say, huh? 
You see, people in crazy houses are happy outside of reality. That's not what a Christian is. A Christian has joy, comfort, and stability. Steadfastness, Paul says. This kind of joy leads to steadfastness in the midst of those difficulties. You may say all those things and not have a smile cross your face. You may be depressed, but you're steadied, knowing that your Lord will get you through that depression. You don't know when, you don't know how, but you're trusting in Him, not in your circumstances. This is real reality. You see, Christians need to know real reality. Peter says, you rejoice in the midst of this. This is not a command. This is an observation that Peter has. He says, you are rejoicing. Look at yourselves. Be encouraged. You are rejoicing in the midst of this. You are greatly rejoicing. Joy looks forward to what will come. It's an exuberant joy. We've talked about it in terms of shouting for joy. We sang it when David says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. This is the reality of what salvation is. It's joy looking forward to what will come. Notice how Peter ends this passage here. He says, This is all in the case because you are obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The end goal is in mind. You see, Christianity is about more than relief from difficulties. It's about more than blessings. There are people out there today that want you to become a Christian so you can get a Cadillac. Or have money. Or never be sick. That's not what reality is. Real reality is in the midst of not having a Cadillac, not even having a Dodge, And having a cough all the time. Or a bad leg. Real reality is having real joy in the midst of that. Because you see the same experience for these folks that caused them grief. Their profession of Jesus Christ. That caused them to be ostracized. That caused them to have difficulties in relationships. That same reality is the source of their great joy. Is that true for you today? Your trials, do they bring you closer to the real Jesus Christ and be a source of real joy to you? That's real encouragement. Well, in conclusion then, what lessons can we learn from this? Very briefly, three things. You may today, this week, be pretending that suffering and trials are not a real part of your life. There is a sophisticated difficult pastoral counsel that I need to give you. So listen up. Stop it. Stop pretending. You're not doing yourself any good by pretending the difficulties in your life aren't real. Don't do it for others. You can grieve. You can suffer difficulties. But in the midst of that, look to Jesus. And there, find comfort and hope. And don't ignore the reality of Jesus Christ in your life today. Jesus is not someone that you must know the day you come to faith and the day of judgment. Jesus is your only hope all the time in between. 
Jesus is your only hope. He is real. Trust Him in the midst of everything. And finally, encourage one another. Be a Peter. Do you see others going through troubles? Encourage them. Don't try and ask maybe how you can make it better. Don't try and encourage them to put a Band-Aid on it or to get up slow. No. Encourage them that that's okay and point them to Jesus. That's what Peter did. It was a comfort to these folks suffering and going through trials. That same comfort can be found by you and by me in the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ in our life today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with this word. Oh, Lord, where would we have hope except in you? We ask that, Lord, that you would show us the reality of Jesus Christ in our life today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.